Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is um, one of the leading authorities on the political aspects of the religious right. She is the author of the Good News Club. She contributes to the New York Times, American Prospect, Washington Post, and many other publications. She has a new book called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Her name is Catherine Stewart. She joins me by phone. Catherine, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I want to talk about this uh, dangerous rise of religious nationalism. Uh, First of all, what is religious nationalism, and how does it compare to what I remember as the moral majority from the uh, Reagan era? These are great questions. So <clears throat> first we'll talk about the definition, then we'll talk about what's changed. Christian nationalism is a political ideology that ties the idea of America to certain religious and cultural identities. The ideology is anti-democratic because it says that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is a particular religion, and it insists that that's what makes us distinctive rather than our democratic system of governance or our Constitution, or our long, if imperfect, history of assimilating very diverse people in a pluralist society. And uh, religious nationalism is also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating a large subsection of the public. So when you look to other countries and you see um, leaders like Viktor Orban or uh, Vladimir Putin or Erdogan, binding themselves very closely to religious conservatives in those countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of power. We rightly recognize that as a form of religious nationalism, and that's what we're seeing with Trump's alliances with hyper-conservative religious leaders uh, today. Now, how has this changed since uh, the days of the moral majority? I mean, let's start with the 2016 election. Trump got elected by by making a deal with this cohort, and as a result, he won a higher share of their vote than any of his Republican predecessors. In, say, the Bush era, um, Christian nationalists used to be just one part of a relatively diverse Republican coalition, and the controlling powers tended to try to please them with mere words promising things like we're going to limit abortion and the like or defend uh, the traditional family. But today, they're the single most important element of the Trump Republican Party, and they're collecting more than just words from their leaders. In fact, Trump has always 
boasting of all that he's delivering to them. Um, he's always saying, I've given you everything you asked for and more. And uh, they're asking for more than a seat at the table. They want to overturn the, uh, you know, smash the table altogether and replace it with something different. They're demanding a license to discriminate against people who are different from themselves. Uh, basically, the ability to uh, withdraw from the law when it offends their religious principles and thus also withdraw from the sort of social contract that uh, applies to everybody else in society. And I think it's also important to note that what's distinctive about this current phase of religious nationalism is the near-perfect alignment of this form of nationalism with a single political party. So even though the movement over time has set itself in opposition to both religious liberalism and political liberalism, it's never enjoyed the type of power that it that it enjoys today. When you talk about the the dangerous rise, um, it it presupposes that there's an end somewhere on the horizon. Um, is is this going? Does this have the potential of going back in time to the the days when there was a like in England when there was a religious leader along with the monarch? Um, or as we see in some uh, Middle Eastern countries, there's a president and there's an ayatollah. Um, I, I, are we headed in that direction? I don't think so. I mean, the, there's no sort of central command and control for this movement. Um, there, the movement is made up of a number of different organizations and leaders. Um, they spent decades spending hundreds of millions of dollars building an infrastructure of legal advocacy organizations, uh, think tanks, political campaign infrastructure, data organizations. Um, they've also transformed many of America's conservative churches into what is essentially partisan political cells, and I think we should talk more about that later. But um, it's not uh, like a sort of centrally organized uh, movement. It's got a lot of different pieces. That said, my book does sort of pull back the curtain on many of the leading personalities of the movement, many of the most intriguing personalities of the movement, along with the inner workings of a lot of the advocacy organizations that um, comprise its sort of machinery. Your book um, pulls from interviews and, and uh meetings that you've attended and research that you've done over a decade. Um, That's right. Was it always with the book in mind? And, and whether it was or wasn't, were you... Um, what got you interested in this particular direction? Like first got interested in the topic in 2009 when a good news club came to my kid's public elementary school. I was living in Santa Barbara, California. Good news clubs are designed to convert children in their earliest years of learning, kids in the kindergarten, first, second, third grade, into a deeply fundamentalist form of evangelical Christianity. And they because they're in public schools, they confuse little kids into thinking their public school endorses this form of religion. 
the good news clubs that I attended, and I attended dozens all across the country, they encouraged children attending the clubs to proselytize and recruit their classmates. So I was astonished to learn that there were thousands of these clubs operating in public schools nationwide. And to me, they seemed wildly inappropriate in a diverse public school setting. Look, I mean, if we're our public schools are to function effectively in a diverse society. They need to be welcoming for all families. But at first, I, I really also thought they were kind of relic of the American past, and I was really wrong about that. <laughs> so I, I learned more about these clubs and the movement behind them and decided to publish a book about them and the movement they represented, and that came out in 2012. That was my first book on this topic. It's called The Good News Club. Uh, and over the years, I just kept digging deeper uh, I just kind of couldn't look away from this um, feature of um, our society. I was stunned by the movement's legal sophistication, determination, its coherence, and the fact that it was operating largely under the radar of many uh, moderates and progressives in our society. So, you know, I had to conclude at the end that good news clubs, as much as they were just a a part of a larger attack on public ed. The attack on public education was really just one part of a larger attack on America as a modern constitutional republic. With the um, in your in your book, you talk about uh, leaders versus uh, followers, and is there a significant difference between the goals of the leaders and the followers? Absolutely. I think a lot of the people attending America's churches, uh, conservative churches, I'm sorry, would not think of themselves as members of this movement, but they have, uh, in many instances, surrendered their political will to their uh, religious leaders who direct them how to vote. So I do think it's helpful in understanding the movement to uh, distinguish between leaders and followers. This is a leader-driven movement. Now, the foot soldiers may believe often that they're fighting for things like traditional marriage or a ban on abortion. Um, but over time, the movement's strategists have reframed these culture war issues to capture and control the votes of a large subsection of the American public. They understand that if you can get people to vote on a couple of issues, you can get their vote. And so they use these issues to direct political power for themselves and their allies. Um, and increase also the flow of public and private money in their direction. Um, I'll just give you an example of this. I went to this one, uh, multiple pastors. It was in Southern California, and it was held at a mega church. And these pastors, you know, the movement leaders know that if you can control how pastors, what kind of messages they're giving to their congregations, you can get those pastors to turn their congregants to vote in a certain way. So at this particular event, which was held in a, a not wealthy area, so you're, many of the pastors are working with congregations, you know, where people are sort of financially struggling or, you know, maybe they've got jobs, but they're not making a ton of money. So when the, uh, the, the, the leaders of the event told the pastors, he said, when you're talking to your congregations about, you know, financial issues, what's more important, talking about the minimum wage or talking about life, so meaning abortion. So if you put it that way, you know, what's a few extra dollars versus life itself? Um, and the 
pastors, you could see they were sort of like nodding, like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And they, uh, leaders of this event, were also offering pastors tools that they could use to convey these issues to their congregations, like voter guides or videos or things like that, things of that nature. They're giving them talking points. Exactly. They were giving them very, very clear talking points. Uh, They were directing pastors to encourage their congregants to vote biblical values, what they call biblical values, of course. Um, I think most American Christians actually think that uh, their religion has to do with something with caring for the poor and supporting the undefended and the vulnerable. But uh, this movement has kind of embraced an incredibly uh, distinct interpretation of the religion that emphasizes, that boils down at the end of the day to these positions in the culture wars. Who who are some of the leaders of this uh, uh, movement? And are they people that we know, or are they somewhat in the shadows? Uh, some of them are people that we know. If you pay attention to this kind of uh, movement, like folks like Tony Perkins, the head of the Family Research Council, is somebody who I profiled in my book, Ralph Drollinger, uh, who's the head of an organization called Capital Ministries. He uh, target its uh, political leadership with his ministry. He's taught a Bible study to at least 11 out of 15 members of Trump's cabinet, multiple members of the uh, U.S. Congress, uh, folks like David Barton, who's a kind of the movement's sort of favorite sort of fringe historian and has held pretty uh, important roles at various points in the Republican Party and in He's also the leader of uh, one of the leaders of an in- initiative called Project Blitz, which is an, a legislative initiative targeting state legislatures with um, identical bills intended to grade, dis- uh, degrade the separation of church and state. So the movement does have uh, many leaders. I also write about some of the leaders of the past, folks like Phyllis Schlafly, um, thinkers, theologians who uh, had an outsized influence in the movement, such as Lusa Rachduni and many others. We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead. <music> Fashion Radio for a new generation. The TomSumnerProgram.com. The TomSumnerProgram.com. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom General stuff? Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead. There's a huge divide in this country, and, and some people think it's a right-left, some people think it's uh, based on... Uh, Income and wealth, wealth inequality. Um, there are certainly culture wars going on over issues like uh, abortion and gun control. Um, what are the money interests that that people are concerned about that that control government? through campaign donations and lobbying activities and, and other things. Um, are those things different than the power that the um, religious nationalists are seeking? I think this is a really important question. Um, what's the relationship between... Um, the money interests and religious nationalism. Um, religious nationalism is unabashedly identified with uh, power and wealth. Um, the movement has come to depend critically in recent years on the wealth of a growing subset of America's plutocratic class. And these folks are committed to low taxation and minimally regulated economy uh, as much as they are committed to these right-wing positions in the so-called culture wars, if you look at, you know, this is another way you can see that this is not just a movement about uh, the culture wars, about abortion and same-sex marriage. When they're communicating to one another, then this, these are, I'm sorry, when they're communicating to congregants and the rank and file, it's always abortion and you know, defense of the traditional family, but when they're communicating to political leaders, when they're communicating to one another, when they're communicating especially to the funders, they're embracing things like what they call biblical economics, the idea that the Bible says uh, is against uh, uh, environmental regulation, regulation of industry, the Bible favors minimum taxation. I mean, this sounds kind of absurd, but this is something that they talk about quite openly when they are um, actually, you know, in the forms that they share. So I'll just give you one example. Um, Ralph Drollinger, who I mentioned before, and who has this very influ politically influential um, ministry network called Capital Ministries, says that progressive taxes are unbiblical. He wrote, he offers Bible study uh, guide. Uh, texts that are available online. You can sort of look them up. One of them says, nowhere does God command the institutions of government or commerce to fully support those with genuine need. He said um, in another study guide um, toward a biblical understanding of lawmaking, he cites Peter 2, 18 to 21, servants be submissive to your masters in all respects, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable and he explains what he draws from this, what this, what this, uh, this Bible passage. The economy of Rome at the time of Peter's writing was one of slave and master. 
The principle, however, of submitting to one's boss carries over to today. Think about that. Submitting to one's boss, not just, you know, having a job and, you know, participating in economic growth. And it's, he's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of astonishing. Another uh, one of those leaders I mentioned earlier, David Barton, has also said that God opposes progressive income taxes, capital gains taxes, and a minimum wage laws. So the leaders of the movement have incredibly expansive positions on things like foreign policy, economic policy, domestic policy. And that shows that this is a broad political movement. In the 2016 election, and and since during the uh, during this uh, first term of uh, Donald Trump's presidency, um, there are so many people who have a difficult time reconciling how people who claim to be um, Christian can accept the behavior of um, a, a president that the Pope says is clearly not Christian. That's true. I know. It's incredible. I think, you know, for people on the outside, the alliance between the so-called values vote cohort and Trump remains baffling. I think some people think that it's just transactional. You know, they think that Trump will enact policies that are favorable to their interests or appoint judges that are going to um, appoint uh, judges that are going to vote in their positions that they want in the so-called culture wars, or there are many who are sort of economic conservatives, and they think that Trump, Trump will just simply promote right-wing ep- economic policies that are favorable uh, to them. But, you know, to those familiar with the political transformation of this large segment of white Christian conservatism over the past two decades is that it, it's really about power. It's not, it's, look, they have the sense that Trump is fighting for them. You know, they really don't want just a seat at the table. They want to replace America's constitutional republic with a state rooted in a particular understanding of their religion and to uh, rearrange the existing order. Um, if you look at People And so for those folks, Trump is their ideal leader. I mean, people like Paula White, who's now a member of the Trump White House and special advisor to the Face and Opportunity Initiative, describes Trump as a king. She said, it, is, it takes God to raise up a king. Uh, folks like Franklin Graham has said, uh, I believe God, I'm paraphrasing here, he said something like, I believe God played a hand in the last in this last, in the 2016 election, other leaders like David Barton have called Trump God's guy or God's candidate. They really want a, a more authoritarian form of power. And they actually compa- compare him sometimes to kings like King Cyrus or King David. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of astonishing that we're really, the thing about kings is that they don't have to follow the rules. They are the law. And um, there is something about um, Trump that understands this longing for the kind of hard hand of the despot. He sort of plays into this. 
the is the war not war that's the wrong word is the um the argument about separation of church and state over the ar- yes the argument is about that but it's also really about uh making a, a direct attack on democracy itself um the christian nationalist movement today doesn't believe in pluralism uh, doesn't respect pluralism or believe in um a modern secular democracy and I found this really clear when I went, for instance, to the Verona, Italy. I went to an organization uh, called the World Congress of Families. They hold it every year or so, and it's a gathering of the so-called global conservative movement. There were um, a number of uh, American religious right representatives there, and they were in discussion with leaders of um the sort of global conservative movement in other countries. Russia plays an outsized interest, uh, 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 outsized role in this in this uh, alliance. Um, there were other representatives from folks like uh, from places like Spain or uh, or Poland. And one of the speakers stood up and said, "Please make liberal politicians fear you." Another one uh, stood up and declared war on. Um, liberal democracy. Um, others, uh, sometimes they couch it as a culture war in support of a defense of the American family. I'm sorry, in defense of the traditional family. But when you really look at what they're after, it's replacing the idea of um, liberal democratic governance with uh, an alliance of faith-based ethno-nationalist states. Which which of the uh, of the two documents, the U.S. Constitution and the Bible, um, are best understood? Um, that's a good question. What do you mean by best I've understood, always, and what do you mean by whom? <laughs> I, well, I've I've always thought that um, that that the Constitution and the Bible have been misquoted and used to defend a variety of oppressive behaviors and it it strikes me that people really don't understand those documents very well and and i i guess i'm saying um is is this a matter of people not understanding the the constitution or misunderstanding um, the the teachings of the Bible, um, you know, when when did it become? When did the Bible become um, not so much a teaching tool as a guide for ruling? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, these are there are a couple of this question raises a number of interesting points, and I think it's worth noting that there's a whole movement of religious people who draw very different interpretations of the Bible and who think Christianity is about caring for the poor and undefended, not abandoning them, about affirming people's rights and not denying them, and about being open and tolerant, embracing a pluralistic world, and not seeing people as tribe or religious insider first, but seeing people as human beings first instead. Um, I think that 
Christianity in America is obviously extraordinarily diverse, as is probably every other religion. So the movement includes many evangelicals, but it's worth you know mentioning that it excludes many evangelicals too, um, many white evangelicals, and probably most black evangelicals. And um, the larger movement does include also representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. Um, and while it claims to represent an authentic form of religion, many progressive Christian leaders question whether it is authentically Christian in the first place. A lot of people would uh, draw the conclusion that there's uh, uh, a racial component to this, and, and you refer to that in your book as being um, more implicit than explicit. That's true. You know, at one of the conferences that I went to in 2018, I think it was a Road to Majority conference, Ralph Reed, who's one of the le- leaders of uh, the one of the very influential right-wing policy groups, he stood up there and he said, they, meaning Democrats, are always talking about race, and he said, they get it wrong. He said, it wasn't whites that voted for Trump as much as evangelicals. He said, if you, and conservative Catholics, He said, if you back the evangelical vote out of the election, Trump loses with whites. So he was correct that the election was very much about religion, but I believe he was papering over a fundamental connection between racism and conservative white evangelicalism. He ignores the way that form of religion on the ground uh, and racism tend to reinforce one another. For one thing, they're driving support for the culture wars um, that are promoting a political party that has made race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression a strategic imperative. But this basic reality of the ways in which white conservative evangelicalism and race racism reinforce one another really stands in uncomfortable contradiction with the leaders' goals of trying to expand Christian nationalism to people of color. As I described in my book, uh, I go to events where uh, they're trying to gather together Latino pastors and black pastors to try to get them in on the culture wars too. I mean, leaders of the movement can uh, see the demographic future of our country and voting habits. And they realize if they limit their, uh, you know, their voters are limited to white conservative evangelicals and, and Catholics, then they largely, they're really going to lose these elections. So they've made a very big effort to reach out to pastors of color, uh, conservative-leaning pastors of color, I should say, in, con- in, in effort to kind of gather the, some subsection of votes of their congregants. It's kind of a cynical move, in my view. In in the title of your book, the book is uh, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. There are a lot of uh, Trump supporters and supporters of this movement that would think that there's nothing dangerous about this at all. Um, what do you think the dangers are? Well, I think the danger is, uh, you know, to our democracy itself, to our rights, 
to um, our public order. I mean, think about it. Our, as you mentioned earlier, our country has never been more divided. And I think that a lot of that comes from the top. I mean, uh, at this year's March for Life in Washington, D.C., Trump said to the crowd, they are coming after me because I am fighting for you. I mean, he's basically declaring himself the representative of only one section of the American public. He is not even pretending to represent all Americans. He is not trying to unite us in any way. He said, you know, he sort of stoked this persecution narrative. He said, the far left left is act, actively working to erase our God-given rights. He said that Democrats want to, quote, ban religious believers from the public square. This is ridiculous. Nobody's trying to ban <laughs> believers from the public square. But stoking the persecution narrative is a way, it's like, this is what religious nationalisms do. They, they cast their political opponents, not just people with honest differences of opinion. They're, they cast their political opponents as, as the enemy, you know, the evil ones. Um, Bill Barr calls them, um, you know, organized, hell-bent on organized destruction. He identifies anyone who sort of opposes his agenda as sort of seculars who are committing an unrelenting assault on religion and traditional values. And though people who support pluralism or want to respect the separation of church and state are out, out there sort of ransacking everything that is holy and good. So this is what religious nationalisms around the world do. They rely heavily on a persecution narrative, the idea that the dominant national identity is under threat from an aggressive other. And uh, I, I don't, unfortunately, see this type of rhetoric diminishing in the Trump era. This is something that people have complained about ever since the Supreme Court ruled against prayer in school. And I remember uh, JFK, uh, well, I've seen video of JFK uh, in, in press conference settings uh, responding to that ruling by saying that, that Parents, you know, have a number of uh, options to address their concerns by praying more at home and attending their churches with more fidelity. Um, but we don't hear that kind of, of of talk anymore, and it does seem as though, like like prayer in school has been almost criminalized in, in the process of trying to be more politically correct or politically hmm. sensitive. Um, is That's interesting you say that. I, I, I have to disagree. Children have always been allowed to pray in school. Um, and what, what's not supposed to happen at school uh, is that teachers are not allowed to direct children in sectarian prayer in public schools because public schools necessarily serve a diverse population. But Listen, I wrote but I'm a not book sure that people the understand the uh, the intricacy of that. Um, uh, they feel like they're being. Pre- it, it, and it doesn't seem that hard to me to understand either. But there are people who believe that that there's actually a repression there. It's interesting. There are. That's a sort of a line that's been promoted by the right. They talk about, 
you know, prayer in schools as being the, the thing. Sometimes they say it's prayer in schools. Sometimes they say it's Roe versus Wade. But if you look at this, if you look at the kind of intellectual line of this kind of opposition to um, d- democracy and pluralism and equality, or what Rusas Rashduni, who is like an incredibly influential theologian, called the heresy of democracy, the heresy of democracy, think about that. There's a much deeper, there are much deeper roots in our American uh, history of this kind of opposition. I mean, the opposition to public schools, to public education, goes back to the era following emancipation when pro-slavery theologians such as uh, Robert Louis Dabney, uh, who was an incredibly influential theologian, um, opposed the formation of public schools because he didn't think that white people should be taxed to offer education to black children. Um, uh, these folks decried pluralism. They, in some ways, are the founders of the sort of Christian nation myth. They had, they had this idea that um, America was founded as, as an authentically Christian nation with hierarchies that were rooted in the Bible, um, that uh, the, we were supposed to be having the Constitution was uh, ensuring freedom, not freedom from religion, but for religion, meaning that, you know, um, religion should be able to play a, a forceful role in American life. Um, they had a very particular understanding of religion. Um, and uh, looks, I, I want to read you a quote from one of these pro-slavery theologians that, you know, was defending slavery. He said, the parties in this conflict between abolition and slavery, they're, okay, on the one side, atheists, socialists, communists, Red Republicans, Jacobins. Jacobins referring, of course, to the French Revolution and the principles of the Enlightenment. He said, on the one side, and freedom of order, and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. So they're positing this conflict as one between the orderly folk who believe in biblical literalism and absolute submission to authority, the idea that hierarchies are ordained in the Bible, and uh, equal rights for all is, is, is hooey. <laughs> That's one side. And then on the other side, you have us, you know, the regulate, you know, promoters of regulated freedom and order and a sort of biblical society. And so you see this kind of divide still taking place today. Now, of course, the role of slavery has uh, really been taken out of the picture. But still today, the leaders of the Christian nationalist movement talk about hierarchies as biblically ordained, certainly um, of men over women, and um, uh, certainly, of course, of, um, as, as Ralph Dollinger put it, you know, um, employers over their employees. We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, Straight ahead. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hello there, citizens. 
Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball, or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hey, why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney General and we got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash AG. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead. Has this movement been an evolution over time, or is it a fairly recently trending phenomenon? You're absolutely right. It is an evolution over time. Um, This ideology that has promoted the values of biblical literalism and set itself in opposition to religious liberalism and political literal, I'm sorry, um, this ideology promoted the values of biblical literalism (laughs) and set itself in opposition to religious liberalism um, has been around for a long time. But what varies with this type of ideology over time is the alignment with political power What's distinctive about the current phase of this movement is the near-perfect alignment of this form of religious nationalism with a single political party. So um, this cohort uh, was, you know, even a couple of decades ago, considered more fringe. Think about it. Look, when Roe versus Wade was passed, remember, most Republicans supported it. Um, Betty Ford called it a great, great decision. Think about uh, Barry Goldwater, that great conservative hero. He supported uh, uh, liberalized abortion laws early in his career, and his wife Peggy was a co-founder of Planned Parenthood in Arizona. I mean, things looked very different uh, even a few decades ago. There was a kind of pro-choice Republican movement that persisted up into the 90s. But over time, leaders of the movement kind of, figured out that they could use certain culture war issues to unite and coalesce these disparate strands of the movement around a much more tight core. And so they purged the Republican Party of any pro-choice voices, um, and they united the, the movement around, you know, well, and interesting, culture war issues. And, and interestingly, it seems like the uh, Republicans and Democrats, as we know them, are on the opposite sides of where you think they would be on that issue. You would expect the, the Republicans to be pro-choice and, uh, and, and Democrats to be pro-life um, based on their, their core principles. Um, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, the, uh, I'm not sure you would think that Democrats would... Be, I'm not sure what you mean by pro-life. Um, I think they would uh, be more apt to be the group advocating for an unborn child. Well, and and I think there was cohort of the Repub- of the Democratic Party you're talking about. It's true that in the previous era, abortion was primarily seen as a Catholic issue. It was often put in the context of a, 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 a of a larger ethos of care for the poor and undefended. But remember, I mean, I think that for many Democrats, um, a pro-choice position, the idea that um, a a fetus, 
particularly in its, uh, the earliest weeks of development or uh, a zygote is not the moral equivalent of a born child, is not in a position that would be considered uncomfortable for, for many Democrats. Um, but um, even Catholics, uh, even, while Catholic ideology was um, primarily uh, pro, was, was pro, pro-life, anti-abortion, there were many Catholics who um, supported, uh, based on lived experience, some form of, um, expressed some form of comfort, you know, individual Catholics that expressed some form of comfort with some form of uh, liberalization of abortion laws. And, so and birth control. And birth control, for sure. But unfortunately, this is so frustrating for me, Catherine, because this is a, a, a fascinating conversation, but we're running out of mm-hmm. time. And I always oh. want to make sure that guests have an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. First, I'll remind people the new book that comes out this month from uh, my guest, Catherine uh, Stewart, is... The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Ride of Religious Nationalism. But, um, Catherine, you've done a, a number of other things, op-eds for the New York Times, uh, the uh, other book, The Good News Club, and, and other writing that you've done. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. Thank you. It's katherinestewart.me, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Stewart. There are two S's there. And, of course, uh, my book, The Power Worshippers, is available everywhere books are for sale. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for uh, spending this time and talking about this, uh, um, this, this new book. I appreciate it. Really a great conversation, Tom. Thank you so much. All right. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. <laughs>
but spreading like a plague. And POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well, then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well, unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until july a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm and if you got a better <coughs> now back in 1918 influenza had its run but half the docks were busy overseas with world war one today we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus well then stay six feet away super damn important that we practice isolation because we are asymptomatic while it's an incubation will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation it's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it then we're all gonna die if we don't do it then we're all gonna die and so i hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart because it's already scary and we're only at the start if you get bored just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized oh super bad transmittable contagious awful virus if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine the last until july a super bad transmittable Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.